millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Derbies in Manchester and Sunderland captured the attention going into the Premier League's 10th round, but after this weekend's results, focus turns to the seemingly eternal question, is Arsenal for real? After a midweek win over Bayern Munich, the Gunners posted a 2-1 victory at home against Everton to earn their share of first place. With Sunday's draw in Manchester meaning the only thing that preserves City's lead at the top of the table is goal difference. To talk about that, the third managerial change of the season, and the home debut of soccer's Jennifer Lawrence. I welcome my co-hosts, Lawrence McKenna and Kartik Krishnire. And Kartik, what we saw Sunday at Old Trafford was a game that probably served both sides' purposes, just didn't serve any of the viewers' purposes. The nil-nil draw means five teams are now within three points at the top of the table, but it also means that those of us that were waiting for this marquee matchup this weekend were denied any basic entertainment value from that game. Right, yeah. Roberto Mancini uh, went into a game against Manchester United similarly five five seasons ago, and that was the last draw between these two teams. Nil nil. Also, that was at uh, that was at the City of Manchester Stadium at a time when Manchester City uh, was trying to just make sure they were a top four team that season. This was very different, but I think both managerial managers' tactics were influenced by Chelsea's decline because. In the last few seasons, it's felt like you've had to chase down Chelsea or you've had to chase down somebody else and have to take full points in, in, in this Derby fixture. And, and Manchester City has gone for it, typically in the Pellegrini era. In fact, was was well too open, I think, at Old Trafford last season. Hmm. This year, he shuts it down, right? He locks it down. Fernando Fernandinho, Yaya Torre, essentially three three holders. Yaya Torre playing in kind of a, a number 10 role, but... Really not. So, and, and he didn't look influential in that role if that was what he was meant to play in. And post game, Pellegrini basically said, "Yes, uh, sometimes we need to be pragmatic. We didn't have Silva. We didn't have Aguero." We take the point. We move on. Yeah, before digging down into the specifics of the game, Lawrence, I just want to get your general thoughts on uh, a game that, given the talent on the field and how we've seen City and lately Manchester United also put up goals, we probably wouldn't bet have bet on a nil-nil. But as this game unfolded, well, it became pretty clear that both managers would be fine with that result. I mean, to be fair, we've also seen them post some pretty reasonable, I mean, not reasonable, but actually quite good defensive performances and we've praised some individuals within there but maybe there have been questions over whether their systems worked against quality strikers so i think we thought that you know the the uh ever velocitous man city um against whatever direction manchester united are moving in um we, we assumed that there'll be something in there but i think in the end they didn't cancel each other out i think more to the point would be we're again seeing how this time of football 
can sometimes result in what we think of as boring games. Some people love a good nil-nil. I think Jonathan Wilson is, you know, whenever you meet him, he's always like, I remember this nil-nil when you think, (laughs) okay, that's how you should appreciate. And I think sometimes, you know, we've been sold for years, the Barcelona idea of there's a right and a wrong way of playing football. And very many people have said it's the Mourinho and Rafa Benitez way of a few years ago of getting nil-nils and one-nils was not that way. But we've now moved so far the other way that we're now, we're almost bought into our own hype. And Mm. I think that's negative for the Premier League. Yeah, maybe it is. I, Kartik, I, I want to get your thoughts on that before drilling down into the specifics because there is always a tendency to, even if you're against this view of the world, to think of things in terms of this is better football than this, etc. And I think we spent a lot of time on this show pushing back against those notions. But at the same time, when two teams play a game, you want to know that at least one of those teams is going to try to win the game. And today, it seemed like neither team was willing to really push to win the game. Granted, United created some chances late on. But it didn't seem like they were really really willing to risk much to generate those chances. Yeah, and, and these two teams have played almost regularly around this time of, of the season. I mean, this is the same weekend the two teams played to the 6-1 game uh, in 2011. This is uh, one weekend before the two teams played last season uh, to a 1-0 at, at the City of Manchester Stadium, which both teams were going for even a, a little bit after United got a guy sent off. Right, I think with Smalling right before halftime. So this was a little bit uh, different. But again, I think it was the circumstances. And, and it was not, not a great spectacle for all of us. But teams are now looking at the Premier League as being more competitive. Both teams have already lost two games this season. We've, we've historically said you can only lose five games and win the Premier League. That might be a little different this season because of the level of competition and balance in the league. But we would be looking at one of these two teams dropping their third game already in October. Hmm. If uh, if there had been a result in this game, uh, 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 I mean a, a win or lo- win loss result, so I, I think both teams, with that in mind, uh, were, were not ready to chance it. And you might see the same thing when Arsenal plays Manchester United or Manchester City in the near future. I do think it's very interesting, though. A few years ago, we were talking about these very close one nils and nil nils that we saw in the Premier League. That's almost back in two thousand and five. So that's almost a decade, two thousand and five, two thousand six, but almost ten years ago now. And we've seen football evolve a little since then, but it was still based on individual mistakes at times. And very often it was how goals were gotten. And we've seen that over the weekend as mismatches, those kind of things. But I think we therefore have to question what these managers are playing towards and what they're playing for and how they're setting up their teams and managers. Sorry, how they're setting up their teams and players. Rio Ferdinand made the point earlier in the week, which didn't sit right with me, but I, I don't know if I'm quite equipped to explain why. But he basically said... When was the last time we saw a great individual centre-back? I can't name... That's not his accent, but... <laughs> I can't name one, but, you know, when, when in the last 10 years have we seen a great individual centre-back? And you're sort of like, things have moved on now, Rio. Like, it's not just about that anymore. And I think the, the problem would be, like, you know, we can point to a number of individuals this, t- this weekend who have let their... Not in inverted commas, let their team down. But I think that's what our football is playing towards. And I think we then question why we're more nuanced and more intelligent, maybe more life-loving teams and not people who constantly put this anxiety onto the players beat English or European sides and show themselves to be dominant because they have a greater understanding of the game. And I think overall what it shows is a pretty poor understanding or a, a, a pretty limited understanding of the way that football is in England and the bubble that it is right now, that we build the Manchester derby up to be this. And then we're almost saying it's disappointing when we, when we watch it like that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, but I do think there was an element of just on a basic level being disappointed in this game. I, I like the phrase that you use um, 
the idea of building towards something. Uh, what are we building toward? And I think both of these managers seem to be building for a day when their teams are going to be better than they could put out right now. Uh, Manchester City, even though they're at the top of the table, they're still very hamstrung. Uh, without Aguero, they, they're a completely different team. And compound that with Silva being out too, uh, they're nowhere near the team that we saw at the beginning of the season. So for them, taking a draw and waiting for the day when they can come back in a game like this at full strength makes sense. And then for Manchester United, it seems like this process is going on for so long, but you do have to acknowledge that this is a process. And we even see when Martial is pushed out left and Depay is dropped from the team and Carrick's not getting that much playing time anymore, that Van Hall is still trying to find the 11 that melds the best. And with a player like Ander Herrera playing so well, uh, when he got into the starting lineup, you can see that there's still room for improvement. So maybe both of these teams are saying, take a point now, stay in the title race, don't give a rival full points and then come back in spring and try to make a rush when you do have your team fully together. Uh, and I think I'm trusted by the amount of money they're both spent. And you know, right. you put Liverpool and Spurs and everyone else in that, and then it's also contrasted by so many other things where the short-termism. I guess that would be maybe maybe the even bigger point here would be the Premier League embodies that beautifully. And so many teams got a head start when it first started a few years ago. Manchester United got a head start on Liverpool because they were so much more commercially intelligent. And there was an interesting article today in The Guardian which was speaking about um, ba- basically about the way that um, Man City are, are quietly setting up their, uh, you know, doing their academy stuff now as opposed to making it a very public thing. Mm. Um, and they're slowly leveling out with Manchester United. But there, there's almost a, a shift. It almost feels like there's been a shift in the clubs away from the importance of what's happening on the pitch almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird. Yeah, there's like a subtext to their rivalry now. Having uh, said that, we should talk about what happened on the pitch. Yeah, let's do that. Kartik, I want to get some thoughts from you about what you saw from Manchester City today. You talked about Pellegrini's comments after the match and very pragmatic approach. Uh, Fernandinho and Fernand- Fernando starting behind Torre in the midfield triangle. No Silva, no Aguero. We talked about that. Vincent Kompany getting his first start since uh, controversially playing during the last international break. Do you agree, not necessarily with what the approach produced, but do you agree with the logic of going with this approach? Um, yes, I, I suppose. I mean, because God opened up just a few months ago. It was in April. It, at Old Trafford and without Silva and without Nasri also as, as, as another option. He, I, I think that was that factored into his thinking at the same time. I think when it became obvious that United was going to play the same way, which Pellegrini didn't know before the match, he thought maybe they would be, Memphis would be starting. Martial would be running at them. Uh, Rooney might rediscover his, his typical Manchester Darby form. None of that happened. None of that panned out. Really, the, the standout players for them were Schneiderlin and uh, Schweinsteiger in, in, in central midfield. Maybe at that point you throw Jesus Navas on earlier, uh, or, or you throw him on when you throw him on, but you keep Raheem Sterling on, on and you pull one of those holding midfielders and you go for it. Maybe you put Hinacho on earlier. Uh, because Bonet was was simply kind of playing into this tactic of holding the ball up and and not really making making the runs where you could play uh, even on the counter, even on the break. Mm. But uh, he didn't he didn't make those changes, so I think he was content to take the point. I understand it coming into the match. Where I would question it is once the match played out the way it did, Richard. I think it was obvious United was also playing for the draw. I, Pellegrini set up the team thinking United's going to think they can win this match because Silva and Aguero are out and they scored four goals against us in the same fixture just a few months ago. Now, when that when it, when United was playing just as cautiously as City, I think that's when you make changes. 
And I think that's that's a really interesting point about the idea of potentially changing it mid-match once you see that your opponent uh, has kind of tied a hand behind their back. Lawrence, I want to talk to you about the question that seems to always hover around Manchester United lately. And I'll read a, a quote from Jamie Jackson's match report on The Guardian. Anthony Martial seems wasted by Van Hall when he's not operating as the number nine. Wayne Rooney again played there and was as ineffective as he has been for a long while. We've seen Van Hall bench Memphis Depay. Michael Carrick doesn't seem to be part of the starting 11 anymore. Same thing with Daly Blinn. We see even Matthew Darmion on the right sometimes lose playing time to Antonio Valencia. Why does Wayne Rooney remain the sacred cow when he does not appear to be one of his, his team's best players right now? We haven't seen him in training, Richard. Um, uh, though uh, the, there's clearly something that Wayne brings which doesn't seem maybe statistically to play out even. Um, obviously, he's the captain of the side, and I think maybe Van Gaal may have been, um, although that still doesn't stand up, but he may have been almost told, this is just not a player you drop. Mm-hmm. This is someone that we're looking. But then Rooney's getting old. He's, you know, he's not. You'd almost imagine that by the, the time the next manager comes in, then he's not going to be the focus of the side, right? So why make a side which is so sort of not not well? It clearly doesn't have a Mizzle linchpin, does it? Um, I'd say it's maybe what they like. You say they're building towards something which is for when better days come, hmm. and that they accept that Wayne Rooney will be willing to get in there and do or at least represent what you need to do um, to, to get a nil-nil against your direct opponents. I, you know, I think, that, I think that, that speaks to a lot. But again, it's very all about a lot of intangibles. Kartik, what do your instincts tell you about not only um, Wayne Rooney's play, but why we see Manchester United tweaking so many other things, and the only tweak we see with Wayne Rooney is moving in between a 9 and a 10? Yeah, I, I think he still offers a work rate defensively that, that Von Hall in a game like this really could use. And, and maybe that's why he played the full 90. But he doesn't seem to be comfortable anymore in that number nine role at all. And he was at one point in his career. I, I know we, we've always said we want uh, managers want to see Rooney touch the ball more. Uh, Roy Hodgson was very flexible with him, he, particularly at this last World Cup where to accommodate Raheem Sterling – he, he kind of pushed, uh, and, and Danny Sturridge kind of pushed uh, Rooney out in, in, in wide areas at times. Mm-hmm. And even in, towards the end of qualifying, World Cup qualifying 2013, we've seen a little bit of it in Europe qualifying for 2016. I, but I think what we're finding is that he's not, he doesn't quite have the pace or fitness level. It seems to play intensely for 90 minutes as a number 10. Right and, and dictate play and control tempo of the match, and particularly when you have a double shield like Schneiderlin and Schweinsteiger, who are not your traditional type of defensive midfielders, but are guys that mm-hmm. that can push forward. Schweinsteiger is a converted winger. Let's not forget converted by Von Hall uh, many years ago. So yeah, at Bayern, uh, the type the types of players that can also kind of influence the tempo and pace of a match, and then you of course also have Juan Mata in the side. So. I don't know. I, I think I think we we see a guy who has played so many matches, had so much on him for both Manchester United and uh, England. He's now turning thirty this weekend, or turned thirty, and he started playing in the Premier League when he was sixteen. I just yeah. think I think he's aged quicker than other thirty-year-olds, just because he's had that total burden on him. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the most logical explanation that we keep waiting for old Wayne Rooney to come around, but maybe Wayne Rooney is just old. Well, it was a disappointing game at Old Trafford this weekend, but thankfully for the rest of the weekend's matches, there was some excitement. On Saturday at Villa Park, where the short tenure of Tim Sherwood came to an end, Swansea came back from a 1-0 deficit to claim a 2-1 victory. We'll talk more about the state of the Birmingham club in the next segment. In Leicester, what was expected to be a high-scoring affair ended 1-0, with Jamie Vardy keeping his goal-scoring streak alive by netting the winner against visiting Crystal Palace. Norwich, for the second week in a row, disappointed, this time at home with a flat performance against a West Brom side that finds itself in the top half of the table after a 1-0 win at Carroll Road. Watford, bouncing back after last week's loss to Arsenal, got goals from Troy Deeney and Alman Abdi in a 2-0 win at Stoke. West Ham, taking advantage of Nemanja Matic's foolish, foolish first half sending off, got a second-half winner from Andy Carroll in their 2-1 win over Chelsea. And Arsenal, moving even on points with City, got goals from Olivier Giroud and Lauren Koscielny in their 2-1 victory over Everton. On Sunday, Sam Allardyce maintained Sunderland's managerial tradition by beating Newcastle in his first derby 3-0. Tottenham scored the game's last five goals in a 5-1 win at Bournemouth. United and City had their nil-nil while at Anfield. Liverpool and Southampton looked destined to replicate that nil-nil, but late goals from Christian Benteke and Sadu Mane left the weekend's final game even 1-1. As for the table, Manchester City has been caught at the top, but superior goal difference means they stay in first place, even with Arsenal on 22 points. West Ham and Manchester United are two points back on 20, with Leicester within a game of the top, sitting fifth with 19 points. At the bottom, Aston Villa occupies the cellar on four points, having failed to win since the opening match of the season. Just above them, both Sunderland and Newcastle have six points and are two from safety. When we come back, we'll talk about the Weird Time Derby, but right now, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about our sponsors. You know, we talk to you every week about Rabble.tv, but there's a reason for that. In addition to being an easy way to share your match day experiences with your friends, it's something that's really growing quickly. If you follow World Soccer Talk or Kartik on Twitter, you know how often something is happening on Rabble.tv, and there's no reason you can't get involved. So what exactly is it? Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and the way it works is simple. All you have to do is tune into your game, but then press the mute button on your television, head over to Rabble.tv, and listen to soccer fans providing their own call of the game. Or, better yet, you can create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your microphone. You can listen to a broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. You can call your favorite matches or get involved with your friends and develop your own regular programming. Every day, people are developing new ways to use this platform. So sign up right now at Rabble.tv, where it's your team and it's your call. Kartik, you had a very interesting topic on Thursday, Divers and Cheats, the show you do on Rabble.tv. And you kind of hinted at it a little bit in our last uh, Premier League review show, but uh, why don't you tell me how your, how your Thursday show went? It, w- it was very interesting. We had a lot of listens. We had a lot of interaction uh, on the topic of Jose Mourinho. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, it was time well to lead us into what happened Saturday. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to talk about what happened Saturday because it was Thursday. And I guess that's why we have this podcast. And I'm sure we will get to that topic before the end of the uh, evening. So uh, Jose, he gives us tons of material. We could do a show on him every week. Yeah, and I, I actually would, as 
as tedious as I would find participating in that show, I would actually like to listen to it. Um, we make a lot of money from it. We get a lot of clicks. Yeah, probably get a lot of interesting sponsorships on that one. Um, so why don't we talk about Josie Mourinho in this segment? Actually, let's let's devote this segment to the embattled managers and unfortunately one formerly embattled manager in the Premier League. The Premier League saw its third managerial change of the season with Tim Sherwood following in the steps of Dick Aldercott and Brendan Rodgers. Uh, he was sacked on Sunday after and everyone scrubs on in the podcast. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it, was an inter- it was interesting, though, guys. I don't know if you noticed after the game, but Tim Sherwood, when he came back out for his interview, it appeared that he had been crying. I mean, he was his eyes were just bloodshot, and it seems like tears were welling up in his eyes. And Lawrence, I don't know how you felt about it, but it really did seem like Sherwood, after uh, Swansea came back and won at Villa Park, he kind of knew that he, he was out of bullets in his chamber. Yeah, um, but I, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's a contrast to that, isn't there? Because I think Tim Sherwood... Uh, markets himself on that and I think that worked <laughs> last season that's a good point um and I think it worked because it took them let's not forget to a pretty good FA Cup run last season to the point where when I say yeah. good I mean the final yeah um and he only took over in I think it was fe- it was like mid-February wasn't it when he took over um and it, it wasn't looking great then and that was at a time where we thought um there's you know it's the manager that's the problem here but I think it's been a while that there have been a number of dissenting voices on this podcast about the, how the club is run necessarily. Um, and I think that's part of it for, for Tim Sherwood is that he also had other things going against him. A lot of people were actually quite grateful for what Sherwood did, but they also saw, and this was the biggest problem with Sherwood, just his lack of experience. Yeah. And that's not something I think in the long run people will be able to label, level at him if he makes the right career decisions. I understand how patronising that is for a 26-year-old to be saying to someone who's won the Premier League and kept the team up and done pretty well with Tottenham. But at the same time, it makes sense that he needs to make the right career decision at this point in order to cement his place as not one of those managers that just goes around doing things sometimes. He actually, you know, he, he begins to make a career for himself and emulates the people who have taught him to get to where he is now. Yeah, but you say patronizing, but the, I think that's the thing about Sherwood is that everything just seems so obvious and much like he got off to a strong start at Tottenham and kept touting his win percentage. We all could see through that a little bit. And when you get into the big games, Tim, your team actually doesn't look like a team that is up to par with those numbers you keep citing. And we see this Aston Villa team play and we can see that you're close to something, but we also see in all of these changes that you seem to be bringing in week in, week out, that you're grasping for something that you don't know if it's there or not. And Kartik, I think that is the issue that Aston Villa's management had to look at and really ask themselves, is there any indication, no matter how loyal we want to be to this decision we made last year, as well as this man, that this guy is going to be able to turn it around? And I think they can justifiably say no. But what do you think? Do you think Tim Sherwood should have been given more time? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of undecided on this because he's never started a season with a Premier League club, right? He, he finished the season with Spurs a couple seasons ago and got them to a point where I guess they were they, they were swapping wins for losses, whereas they were drawing some games under AVB, and they were scoring more goals, right? But then he was still sacked at the end of the season. They upgraded in Pochettino. Now with Villa, he came in to save the season, get them out of relegation trouble, which he did. The FA Cup run was a bonus. Uh, but then this season, they start with a win against Bournemouth on the opening day, a game which, quite frankly, they were outplayed in, and they mm-hmm. have not won a game since. They've, they've, they've got one draw in the last nine matches. So... You have to think, though, that Sherwood is the type of guy 
and we deride him, right, as tactics Tim, and there's been all kinds of uh, uh, jokes made about the guy, but he's a motivator, right? And so he motivates certain groups of players, and, at, and, and after a certain point, they tune out on him. Now, this is a largely new set of players from last season. He lost the Delves and the Bentekes. Uh, Grealish was the other player that made a great impact for them, and, he, and he's young, so you can't to expect the level he, of he, Oh, go ahead. He did tweet, though, didn't he? He said gutted. And, and so I think... It. Yeah, there are going okay. to be, you know, there are certain players within the squad which are upset. Very, very right, directly. right. Well, I mean, Grealish was not even on the radar really uh, when uh, to, to, to be a first teamer at least this soon when um, when Lambert was still a manager. But I guess the point being, the question that Randy Lerner and the Aston Villa brass have to ask is: This is a different set of players, largely. Ayu, Gested, the kinds of players they've signed. Is is Sherwood still have one of those bottled up? motivational runs, which we saw Spurs go on when he went there, which we saw Villa go on when he got there, in him with this particular set of players. If he doesn't, time to go. And I guess he didn't. I guess that's the wider point, is that actually that's not what you want from your manager. You don't want him to be saying, right, guys, one more inspirational run. You want want them to be going, right, guys, let's go out and do what we expect. But they don't have the quality. The problem is they don't have the quality to stay in this division. So maybe you need that kind of manager. And I think also Sherwood's tendency not to leave anything bottled in emotionally really makes it difficult for him to come in on Monday or Tuesday, whenever his players will be back, and try to put a new face on this. He He is so honest and he is so emotional at this point. He seemed emotionally drained, and it doesn't seem like that is going to produce a quick turnaround. Maybe it could be a slow turnaround where everybody eventually can get behind him, and they empathize with him, and they want to fight for him. But if that was going to happen, the team wouldn't be in such a slide at this point. So, Well, I mean, that, but Richard, can you then contrast that with the very openness of the way that Klopp says he's emotional? And he mm-hmm. uh, wants his players to play emotional. But there's some, there seems something more cerebral about it, doesn't well, it? Well, like- I don't think Klopp ever gets morose either. And I, Sherwood just seems really down yeah. on himself. And uh, when Klopp is in these situations, he gets he usually gets angry. And I think that's what, that's what made last year at Dortmund interesting because he kind of ran out of the anger. And you could see at year seven, he just didn't – he did, really didn't have any answers at that point. So I think that's when he kind of knew it was time to go. Um, and in that way, yeah. even though it hasn't taken seven years, kind of Sherwood's in the same place that Klopp was seven last months. year. Yeah, it took roughly yeah. seven months. Okay, so where does uh, Aston Villa go next? Uh, three names that we've heard with uh, varying degrees of believability here, Lawrence, are Brendan Rodgers, who has been linked ever since he left Liverpool. David yeah. Moyes was thrown out by the NBC team today. Moyes is a Real Sociedad, won four to nothing today in yeah. Spain, though. And then Remy Grad is somebody that uh, is already in the rumor mill, which is a, kind of a very Aston Villa signing in the same way that they once brought in Gerard Houllier here recently. So what are your thoughts? Uh, with It would be unusual, maybe, to see uh, Brendan Rodgers take up a job, especially so soon. Uh, you'd think that was just a weird one. Um, a lot of people, I think, willing to write Brendan Rodgers into that echelon of managers, especially people who are supportive of other sides. I think some people, they don't want to see him fail, but I think you know they, they want to sort of say, look, you're cemented here, stay where you're, you are. Mm. That's a very English mentality to take as well, like this kind of crappy, you know, know what your place is. And, yeah, stay, stay in your lane, Brendan. Yeah, you've attained your level, now keep it, you know? Like, you you, you put your head above the parapet. No one likes people who put their head above the parapet in England. And, <laughs> that is pretty um, English. Uh, and, uh, but then, you know, the same maybe applies, and maybe that's why Tim Sherwood was a bad fit, because he puts his head above the parapet, but in different ways to Rogers. Mm. Uh, also, Rogers is a poor fit. He said when he came to Liverpool, you know, I need time to implement my uh, philosophy. 
and you sort of think, well, we're going to get relegated here, Brendan. Implement it quickly. Um, so no, that's not going to happen. Or at least you'd hope it wouldn't happen for Brendan Rodgers' sake. Um, Remy Gard seems like an interesting one, though. I mean, French, the, the French in general, uh, in terms of football, sometimes can have a very inspirational side to them. And I'm just wondering whether would Remy Gard almost be trying to motivate his players from just a slightly more would it be is it almost a slightly more uh, refined uh, Sherwood I know it sounds a bit disrespectful <laughs> it's a slightly more egoic way of going do you oh, know what I mean by yeah, that? Yeah I know what you mean uh, Kartik uh, do they need an, an inspiration or do they need a pragmatist at this point? That's really the big question I mean I've been grappling with this for the last few weeks because of the US men's national team the, the 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 reality the, of the, the Aston Villa of international teams. Right, right. Well, no, but the reality <laughs> with the U.S. men's national team, where it applies here, is that we determine that the talent level is probably as bad as it's been since the late '80s, early '90s, mm-hmm. with the U.S. team right now. So, do you need an inspirational manager like Jurgen Klinsmann because he's a he's a wave the bloody shirt kind of motivator? Uh, cheerleader motivator or do you need someone who's more tactical than uh, than than him which would be just about anyone who manages in football so <laughs> that's the real big question and i haven't come up with the proper answer i thought you know we're not very good uh, this being we being the united states we need a tactical manager but then people have come back at me and said no Klinsman's perfect because you need a motivator in that situation so that's sherwood that's sherwood versus lambert that's the contrast right there uh, which Villa went through. Sherwood was the Klinsman character. Lambert probably would be the equivalent of the previous U.S. manager, uh, Bob Bradley. And uh, ne- ne- neither approach seemed to satisfy Randy Lerner, although he stuck Ooh. with the, the uh, Lambert one a little longer. So, so we looking at Bob Bradley? I don't know. No, How well, no, I, I just, I'm Bradley. just giving the, the comparison. Well, though, maybe we could look at him. I, I, I don't think it would be the worst hire at this point. I think no, part of the reason it wouldn't be the worst hire is that we're not really hearing a lot of good suggestions for this job. And Kevin McDonald has taken over his second spell as caretaker for Villa, also as caretaker five years ago. And I just think this was a situation where they just thought the team was going to be better without emotional Tim around. And they probably don't have a lot of good ideas, guys. So this might take a while to really unfold. Bradley might actually be perfect then, emotionally, because he's well, very dour and people don't like that in the media here in the States. But he, he, he's thoughtful with his players. He, and or he's, someone like that. He's going to put out a very organized, stable team that probably right, isn't right. going to push into the top half, but could very well nope. scrape enough points could, to survive. Should we, should we also? They'll get a lot of draws. Should we look a little bit here at the ownership of Villa? I mean, is well, it worth? Uh, that's worth at least a hey. <laughs> look what's happening there. Well, yeah, it might be. It might be worth you, Lawrence, taking a couple seconds to remind people because I don't know that there's anything new to say about the ownership, but it's probably worth reminding people how, how Villa got to this state. Uh, it, it Randy Lerner. Um, and obviously, w- when Randy Lerner was first around on this podcast, we had Morgan Green on here, who, um, for all his opinions, which sometimes offended people very directly, um, you would say he also was very skeptical of the way that he was running the club and sort of was was warning. Uh, by the way, I love, I love Morgan. I'm not. I'm, I was taking taking the Mickey. Um, the the point would be that you know he was saying the way he's run other teams or one other team specifically is not so fantastic. Um, and it was very much a kind of a roll of the dice with Lerner that was kind of, look, we're going to go all out here. And then Martin O'Neill lost all those players and things seemed to have just sort of dropped since there. So it was almost like, look, we're going for it. Oh, no one really has any faith in this project. They're all leaving to Man City. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, the wheels sort of slowly seemed to have not fallen off, but just ground to a halt. Uh, or at least now just rolling along very slowly. And it's kind of strange because it should be a club that is in a city which is 
you know, it's not it's not unstable. It's better off financially than the likes of Newcastle or Sunderland. And it's somewhat of a hub of creativity. And, you know, Aston itself is a place where you'd imagine there are people who can afford season tickets, uh, even though it's not the most positive of places in Britain. If you're a Midlander, you know that. But, you know oh, I'm oh, but, but, I th- but I'm thinking the Midlands in general are in this malaise, unfortunately, economically. And that's contributing to Wolves and Brum and all the and then and, and Villa and all these clubs being down. West Brom somehow has escaped it so far, but you know, maybe they're next. But it, in, to, to some extent, it's still better, though, um, than than the, the, the Newcastles or the Sunderlands or the Liverpools. Oh, yeah. Or, well, if you're going um, to, to, to the northeast, yeah, it's still better than that. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, coming from that, coming from that area anyway and knowing that Birmingham, you know, I mean, if you go to the Bullring at the weekend, it's a thriving place. There's a lot of money being spent there. And you know that there's enough money to be able to buy season tickets, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like there is a lack thereof. And I think, therefore, we, we've got to look at, uh, you know, when we looked at this, I, you know, we're almost getting into the second Premier League or, you know, we're into, we might be even like the fifth or sixth. But this feels like another iteration of the Premier League at this point where we're talking about the teams that have marketed themselves well to other parts of the world and the ones that haven't. And you'd say that to some extent, Villa had a chance to do that a few years ago to keep up with the Liverpools. Yeah, and- yeah. And the and the Uniteds because they had a team there, or, you, or even with the Evertons and the and the Spurs because I think Everton and Spurs now have an international following that Villa doesn't have that they didn't develop and they would have had as good a shot to do that. But I think they to some extent learner. I mean, the the management the the higher the hierarchy of the club has taken for granted that as long as you have a manager that helps you coast until you can sell the club, then you're good. But there have been other teams that have come up and financially and uh, management-wise surpassed Villa in recent years. And I think that's very frustrating for Villa fans who are very footballing. In fairness fairness to Randy Lerner, and I'm not terribly – I'm not in the business necessarily being fair to American owners or to guys with his political philosophy who's gotten his kind of tax breaks. I don't want to get into politics. but So I'm not really a fan of the man. But in fairness to him, those first three or four seasons at Villa, he spent a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He probably spent a disproportionate amount of money uh, compared to their revenues than other top half clubs in the Premier League. I, I don't have I don't have a chart. I don't have numbers, but I just have to say that because they spent a lot of money on guys. Starting when right after he bought yeah. the club, they bought Ashley over Young from Watford in January. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah they, they spent a ton of money. He really allowed Martin O'Neill to overspend, particularly on the wage bill. Yes, correct, yeah. correct. But then look at the talent that Martin O'Neill had there. I mean, that was James Milner, Gareth Barry, Agbon Lahore, Young. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? Downing. I mean, Downing. Uh, Carew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and I think the back line had, you know, they had, basically it was a side which you'd argue is the is the best of what Martin O'Neill could have achieved yeah. with the budget and everything else. And that was the the problem at Villa was that they it just maybe it just wasn't trendy enough. Well, I think um, I think the thing with Lerner is I don't think there is a kind of catch all. Oh, he's bad because as Carter pointed out, no, at some point exactly. he wasn't bad. I think that he has made justifiable decisions not only in cutting back the the wage bill not spending as much on individual transfers not going out and getting another Darren Bent for example um but when he when he hired Lambert I think we all thought that was a good hire and yeah. I think that even going out and getting Julier in the wake of O'Neill I think we all thought that was you know a, a decent gamble and they just haven't really worked I can't really what, point- what actually happened I should say Richard is Julier got them to the top half that season they still finished in the top half he then had his heart problems reoccur mm-hmm. and then the recur I should say and then 
they went out and inexplicably hired Alex McLean. That, yeah. It's just been downhill since then. I think had Julier not developed those heart problems again, they we they might have been okay. But I think the Maybe thing is, see a couple more seasons. I think the thing is that it's very difficult for me to just say, oh, or I'm not saying that you're saying this, Lawrence, but to say that Randy Lerner is bad. I think that Randy Lerner has made some decisions that haven't worked out for him, which is pretty much any team that ends up getting relegated. I mean, obviously you don't end up in this situation unless things go bad for you. Um, but I don't, I'm not buying this this narrative that like everything is down to Lerner. I think no. the, the Paul I Lambert think... decision to me is epitomizes it. V- Villa finished 17th the year before he bought the club. Let, let's not forget that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But what I think, what I think I'm pointing out when I say Morgan's points would be there were some, voices in there which were I, w- I don't want to label them as dissenting but i'd say that they were they were saying look there is a pattern here that this has happened before don't let that same thing happen here and i think it's very hard very often when you hear those things you think well i'll prove you wrong and i'll make but i just think that aston villa have proven themselves to not necessarily learn enough from the environment around them and Absolutely. adapt fast enough and therefore that was the issue and i don't think that makes him good or bad i just think it you know, mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a very kind of raw evaluation, and it sounds bad. It sounds like an indictment, but it's basically just what you can see from the outside. I imagine there's more nuance to it, and you definitely say <laughs> that. In the so. But you know, I, what I'm, I, I've made my point. Yeah, let's let's crawl speed. let's crawl out of the Aston Villa wormhole. Uh, we're going to talk about Steve McLaren. <laughs> Said we're every gonna... Villa fan. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about Steve McLaren. We're going to talk about Josie Mourinho. But first, let's take our first trip to Europe and let's start our weekend updates in Germany, where a frustrating week in Europe for the Bundesliga gave way to an offensive explosion this weekend. On Saturday, Bayern got goals from a returning Arjen Robin, Arturo Vidal, Robert Lewandowski, and Thomas Müller in a four-nil rout of Köln. They moved to ten wins in ten matches with a plus. 29 goal difference. On Sunday, Dortmund posted their second win in a row with a 5-1 win over a very Europa League trouble Augsburg side that now finds themselves at the bottom of the t- table. For Dortmund, though, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had three goals. Marco Royce scored twice. And then Bayer Leverkusen that had that epic 4-4 draw midweek with Roma. They gave up three goals this weekend to Stuttgart, but thankfully for Roger Schmidt's side, his team scored four again, 4-3 victory for Bayer. The weekend's biggest game in the Bundesliga, though, was the last game of the weekend. Uh, Gladbach Schalke wasn't a shootout, but it did have four goals, and now Gladbach are winners of five in a row. They've come from the bottom of the table all the way to seventh place with their 3-1 win over still third place Schalke. Uh, one more league to update on now. Uh, in France, PSG was kicking off with Saint-Étienne as we went to record, but they did so with a four-point lead on the rest of the table after Angers drew with Gungamp on Saturday, meaning only a small piece of the Parisians' five-point lead had been chipped away. Uh, Khan, who came into the weekend tied with Angers, lost to Nantes 2-0 on Friday. Uh, gentlemen, a couple... 1-0 up, by the way. Sorry. Yeah. Um... One, one thing also worth mentioning, mm-hmm. Robin coming back for Bayern Munich. Just think... If they, if he'd been in that uh, Holland side, would there have been a difference? Yes, but also if Marco Van Basten were in that side too, or Ruud Hullet, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, uh, but, those, but those guys don't exist anymore. Robin does still exist. <laughs> Ruud Hullet doesn't exist anymore? That's amazing. How did that happen? He's uh, just he's, he's leading a similar career to Tupac at the moment. He's actually a projection, Richie. Yeah, projection on probably uh, Al Jazeera. Ju- <laughs> Ooh, my ego my is Ruud Hullet. I like that. Um, let's, let's touch on this briefly, Karta, because I don't think there's a lot to talk about with Sunderland's 3-0 victory over Newcastle. Fabrizio Colaccini gets sent 
off towards the end of the first half. Sunderland scores three goals from there, including the ensuing goal, um, Adam Johnson converting the penalty kick. Um, again, Sunderland manager's second game gets a win over Newcastle. This one convincing for Sam Allardyce. I think the bigger question here is regarding Steve McLaren. It's very up and down with him. Sometimes we see good performances from Newcastle. Sometimes we see very poor ones. I just don't get the feeling, given the ownership situation in Newcastle, that we're going to see a change anytime soon with the manager um, with the manager position. McLaren hasn't been good for quite some time. He led Derby out of what looked like a promotion came, campaign last year. But I just don't see until March at the earliest that they're going to make a managerial change there. No, I, I don't think they will. I don't think they'll make a managerial, managerial change this season unless releg, relegation is imminent. I think McLaren has has the time to work through this. Alan Pardew was always given time to work through his problems. I think Newcastle are probably going to be fine, given some of the signs we've seen. They have now lost six straight matches to Sunderland. And, and I've asked Sunderland fans in the past, would you, if you get relegated but you keep doing the double over Newcastle, is it okay to get relegated? And some of them have actually told me, yes, it is. Oh so they continue to defeat Newcastle. This is one of the greatest statistical anomalies that I can remember since I've been following English football, which is somewhere near 30 years. This is a competitive derby between two sides that are generally around the same level, but if they're not at the same level, Newcastle's usually better. Mm-hmm. And it's six successive wins for Sunderland. And I believe in each of those seasons, they've finished below uh, Newcastle on the table. So this is just uh, a, an absolutely stunning development in, in, in that sense. I will have to say, though, the sending off today really kind of makes analysis uh, yeah. uh, very, uh, yeah. very very difficult. Yeah. And these games seem to always have these sorts of bad breaks for Newcastle. So I think the, the Derby now, we're at this point, guys, where Sunderland wins. Let's not get too excited and say they're back. And if Newcastle loses, let's not say, oh, the world's ending because it seems like this happens every time they play. Change, change the game. Change the game so much. And it was such a silly decision as well. Mm. There was no need to... I mean, I understand it was... <laughs> Fletcher went down very easily. Um, Colaccini was silly to do what he did because the goalkeeper was so clearly going to get it. But at the same time, the ref... I mean, if honestly, if that had happened in... If that had happened in the Merseyside derby... I think the referee wouldn't have sent him off. Hmm. Interesting, and and that that's that's I think that's pretty key. And I was texting Chris Hennage at the time, and he said to me, "I don't think that uh, Colaccini will get any punishment for that." And I think that says it all about whether the player should have been sent off or not. Well, as you guys mentioned, it's not really worth digging deep into this game because Newcastle played with 10 men for half of it. Not a lot we can draw uh, out of the performances for either team. Let's move on to another embattled manager. Lawrence, I'll start with you on this one. Actually, let's hold off talking about Jose Mourinho because West Ham really does deserve at least a couple minutes of our time. Uh, After their 2-1 win over Chelsea this weekend, they have now defeated City, Arsenal, Chelsea, and Liverpool this season. They haven't played Manchester United yet, but if the pattern holds, they'll beat Manchester United too. <laughs> That's a great assumption, but all right. <laughs> I'm going by facts here, Lawrence. Only They've already beaten facts. United. They've beaten Bournemouth. They've beaten Newcastle. <laughs> all the big ones, Lawrence. <laughs> what, let me ask you this. Why is this team so much different under Billich as opposed to how they finish under Allardyce? Uh, much freer to play. Um, they... I would imagine have a manager who is encouraging encouraging them in a different kind of creative way. Um, I mean, you know, we all remember Bilic. Um, you, you know what he's done with that Croatia side. He's already almost picking out figureheads of the team and putting them into similar molds. He was saying the other day, um, you know, Pae is my Moldrich, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd imagine that because of that, there is a very 
real positive air around the side because they know what have happened. They know what's happened with some of his more successful teams, and that must breed a confidence within the side. Um, I'm assuming, which is something which makes which means that they feel very level with the other teams. There's there's this scrappy underdog nature to West Ham, which I imagine the fans utterly buy into because that's completely almost if you walk around London how the West Ham fans eat themselves scrappy underdogs that once won the World Cup for everyone in England um, and if you look at the te- look at the players they fit the plan perfectly they fit you know there's Lanzini there's Kirate there's Sacco there's Payet Zarate all players who are technically fantastic um, and you think you know, there's a difference between them under Allardyce and them under Billich, and there's probably a difference with them under the next team they'll go to, which may be a Madrid, it may be a Barcelona, it may be a Napoli or a Lazio or <laughs> someone like that. But you know, that's what that's what you think is they have to build on this momentum they have now because otherwise they will lose those players, mm-hmm. and things could align well for them because they go to the, the you know the new stadium next year, which we obviously imagine will be fantastic, and that will probably give them a better chance of keeping these players. Hmm. Uh, they scored 22 goals in 10 games only Manchester City has a better attack this year the one potentially worrisome thing they've conceded 13 times so far this year uh, but that goal difference is enough to get them third place over Manchester United a team with identical record uh, Kartik what's, what's your version of the Billich versus Allardyce tale why is this team seemingly entirely different even though most of the players that Lawrence named with the exception of Pae really they were here last year yeah I, I think that there is there's a certain freedom to play and, and remember West Ham played pretty well in the first half of last season they, they were weren't they they were in the top half uh, at yeah Christmas. They were, oh yeah they were definitely seventh or eighth yeah then Sacco they were, got injured though didn't he yeah and then when oh, Sacco got injured and, and Allardyce we know doesn't he doesn't. He, he has certain players that he builds squads around. Sacco, yeah, Kevin Nolan also, probably came back at that time from right. And there was also a controversy about Sacco and and, and, and call ups right to uh, the national team and FIFA saying they were oh, going to sanction for him the cup of, remember, for the Cup of Nations. Yeah, yeah. I remember that whole thing. Um, so they just they completely tanked from that point on, and I think. Uh, it was known that uh, the owners were looking to get rid of Allardyce anyway. He was pretty much done at that point. But it, and so there was a – and actually, for a while, West Ham was in the top four last season. Now I think about it because there were jokes about them in Champions League for a while, maybe up until about this point in the season. But, Can we recycle um, those now? Yeah, well, yeah, although this season yeah. seems very different because of who they've beaten, right, and where they've beaten them. So they've beaten four of last year's top six. They've beaten three of them away from home. And in the case of the, the, the result at uh, Liverpool, that, that directly led to Brendan Rodgers sacking. I think there's more freedom in the side. I think there's more confidence in the side. And I have to say also, just looking at the body language of the players, they're having fun. Now, will that last very long? We know, uh, I was reminded by someone that it went all horribly wrong eventually for Village with Croatia. But that happens with national teams, right? Second cycles with national team managers are very different than second cycles with club team managers. So yeah, I think that was less I, disturbing than how he performed when he got back into the club game, where he had a couple of stops well, were yeah, very unconvincing. Yeah, right, right, and that's why I thought because this village to um, West Ham rumor had been there for many years, right, Richard? Right. There, there had been talk of that Golden Sullivan really liked this guy, and I think as early as 2012 when the team was promoted back to the Premier League and wasn't playing very well under Allardyce. The talk was, okay, we're going to sack uh, Allardyce and bring Bilic in. But he was struggling in Russia at the time. So uh, 
I, I think they have had this fascination with him, similar to the U.S.'s fascination with Jurgen Klinsmann, second Jurgen Klinsmann mm-hmm. reference today. Wow. Uh, similar to Sunil Galati's fascination with Jurgen Klinsmann. Differences here, it seems that he was given an opportunity to go out and get Pae, the type of player that prior to this TV deal, we've said it over and over again, wouldn't go to a, outside a big four or big six club in England. And they've gotten him, and he's been able to kind of renew the, the, the enthusiasm for the game among the guys who are returning. Mark Noble is playing especially well. He's, he's uh, habitually underrated, especially when Scott yeah. Parker was there. Nobody would notice Mark Noble yeah. as if we only have, like, one bandwidth for a short, scrappy midfielder. Um, but he, I think that he's just habitually an underrated player there and why he... Probably, yeah. Why in seasons where Scott Parker at one point was named the Premier League's Player of the Year, Mark Noble can't get a little love is a little weird. The one thing about West Ham that always jumps out to me is that they have times now, now that Enter Valencia is coming back, that they have Valencia, Nikika Jelovic, Andy Carroll, and Mauro Zarate on the bench, which is, of course, overkill. But it does show you they have a little bit of depth. And it shows you that they have some options, and obviously those options really paid off this weekend with Andy Carroll scoring the winning goal. Uh, gentlemen, we've put it off long enough. In fact, we're at the we're at the like forty five minute mark of the show, and we've barely mentioned him. Uh, but he did another amazing thing this weekend. Jose Mourinho being red being dismissed at halftime for for trying to get into the officials dressing room to talk about Nemanja Vidic's uh, second yellow card which was a pretty obvious yellow card so Lawrence the thing that immediately came to mind here is he, this guy is sabotaging himself at this point I mean he knows what's going to happen there's nothing good that can come of this and he still did it and you see the you see the shots of him not reacting to Gary Cahill's goal and not reacting to Andy Carroll's goal. This is a guy that seems like mentally he's checking out. What well, is publicly presenting that? Um, yes. Whether I mean that you know that's a very you're right. He knows he's aware of the media uh, spotlight. You just wonder what that means. Um, and if he is checking out, then what that means to the players. Um, and I mean, maybe it's no surprise then that he's not getting the performances or maybe he's getting the performances he wants. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe he's not getting the performances that Chelsea fans would expect. And you say there are too many times in Mourinho's career where other people have suffered for the greater good of Mourinho. Mm. Um, I think that's part of the issue is that, you know, there are, there are a lot of casualties along the way. If you're going to have Jose Mourinho as your manager, um, and it's similar to Van Gaal in that sense. And one or two other managers of that school, who sort of, you know, they they talk about the greater good, or they talk about the longer term, or they remember. They basically think, how will I be remembered? And very often, it's going to be the, the fantastic things Mourinho did. Hmm. Um, and because he's untouchable in some senses, he he's allowed to get away with that. Um, I would say, you know, it, it, but again, he's painting that kind of, you know, he you can't say one minute you can't say, and I know Carter will probably want to speak on this more than I would. You can't one minute say they're trying to get at us, you know, they want us to be, you know, overreacting and then try and get into the officials dressing room. You can't break the rules. And then when, you know, you do break the rules, be annoyed when they then punish you for breaking said rules. Hmm. Yeah. Kartik, I want to throw this to you because you have made your case before as to why Chelsea not only needs to fire Mourinho, but they should have done it three weeks ago. Uh, I still go back to the point that I look at every single one of those players on that team, almost everyone with the exception of William, who I think is having a good year and, 
his his ability on a dead ball seems to be their only means of attack at this point. Diego Costa, I think, is pretty much the same annoying but effective Diego Costa. And Cesar Azpilicueta seems to be fine. But the rest of that team seems so much worse than a year ago that you can either say that's Jose not preparing this team or like we've talked about before on the show, just realize that he has a collection of players that are at the point of their careers where you should expect them to be getting worse. And maybe he actually did miracles over the last two years and now he just can't perform that same miracle. I think if I were Chelsea, I would actually almost double down on Mourinho as they did in their statement a couple weeks ago and say, you know what, we're willing to accept the fact that we've got ourselves in this situation where we need to take a year to reload. So if you want to play Loftus-Cheek every week, if you want to put Raman in the lineup, if you want to put Zuma in central defense or central midfield, go ahead and do it because we're going to expect things next year. This year, we realize we need to reload. Why don't, I mean, but a reload much- is still fourth place. No, be- I, I would I would say at this point, even if they are really going to reload, that they need to realize that Spurs, West Ham, Liverpool are going to really be fighting for that fourth place spot. And if they are really going to build for tomorrow, they have to really look to, for tomorrow. And Kartik, I think that's probably the biggest hole in what I just said is that Bramovich is never just going to accept that. But they are this is their worst start in 25 years. At some point, they need to completely reassess and not go back to the same kind of excuses that got them in this point. Where at this point, where they still kind of okay, well, we won Champions League last year, so we mu- we must not need to rebuild. Yes, you do need to rebuild, and I think they should give Jose the freedom to rebuild the team. Yeah, so it's it's one or the other, right? They either sack Mourinho now because now they're nine points uh, adrift of, of fourth, which is a lot. Ten matches into the season, and and they've got five losses already, which uh, is essentially takes them out of the title race. I did some math, and I and I, I think they have to take points from. Uh, I, I guesstimate that they need sixty three more points to finish in the top four, which means they need to uh, they need to. Uh, they would have to win 21 games or, 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 you know, some combination of getting to 63 points, win 18 games. They can't drop points in more than five or six more games in, in realistically. So, um, or they can't drop, maybe they can drop points in more games than that if they're getting a lot of draws, but they're, they're, they're basically really in trouble for fourth place. So you either make the decision now that you're going to change things up and you're going to sack Mourinho because his behavior becomes more and more bizarre. And by the way, Matic was lucky he didn't get set off earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I understand the frustration about the Fabregas offside. That was very close. We've seen that not called. Advantage is supposed to go to the runner. But Matic was reckless and, and silly, sitting on a yellow, uh, making the challenges he did. Another but, person that seems to be sabotaging himself. Well, correct. Yeah, I mean, this is not the, the first time for this guy. So uh, this season, he, he's, he's a completely different player than he was last season, Matic, uh, much like Fabregas. Point being that you either say we need to finish fourth, we need 63 points, some combination of points to get us to 63 points, which means we can't drop many more, and you're gone. We're bringing Carlo Ancelotti and we're bringing in some sort of fixer. Or we follow your formula, Richard, which is let him just ride it out this season. They're not going to – they're going to finish mid-table or maybe uh, sixth or seventh and then uh, blow it up in the summer. So Roman, because he has extended Mourinho's contract and the buyout is enormous, maybe – he will be forced to take that latter course, although we know that goes against every one of his instincts yeah. in how he manages this team I and mean, owns this team. Yeah, these these players are playing so poorly, though. And maybe a player like Hazard, you say, we, we, we're going to stick with this guy. We know what he can do. And maybe you create a situation where Oscar can get back into the starting lineup. But you cannot bet on Cesc Fabregas 
John Terry, these players coming back and being valuable contributors the way they were last year. John Terry played every minute of the or season. Or the other year. other formula is to sell Hazard to Real Madrid this summer. Let Mourinho have the however much they overpay for him because they. Do will you think Hazard for plays for Real Madrid? Yeah, uh, I think he might just because they like to collect players. Yeah, he might. Well, he, you see, he might. He might uh, be transferred there. They have Bale. They have. Uh, they, they have. Bale, Robert, they have Ronaldo. I don't know where they where can't even play Isco play. when uh, when everybody's healthy and they're going right, to. So right, but you're right. They're going to play, but they collect players. So maybe they, they, they tap them up and they get seventy five million for them, and then they they give yeah. Jose the money to rebuild. Lawrence, but you do well. You do sort of think though the only the only sticking point in that would be, and I would love it if this is the case, would be Rafa Benitez. Is that he's, he would sort of go, I don't really want... Well, I mean, maybe he wants Hazard. He, he's a Riera-esque player, if you like. Um, it, 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 you just sort of think <laughs> Rafa Benitez would be the only sticking point in that. You know? uh, yeah, because, but I, I wonder how much of a voice he'd have in that conversation. Well, I'm just all I'm thinking is, look at the Real Madrid team right now. How Real Madrid-esque of recent years does that look to you? No, I, I don't think Hazard would play for Real Madrid right now. But uh, like Kartik said... Where, where players would play is sometimes secondary to just getting them on the actual payroll. Good, um, good point, but I, I genuinely think that Real Madrid, I think, like, if, if you've got Rafa Benitez, then you want everything that goes with him. And the point is, they're bringing that prodigal son back for a reason, because they want to be, they want someone that that is not from the outside going, right, this is the Madrid way. They want someone from the inside going, right, this is the Madrid way. And if they're going to listen to anyone, it's going to be a Madridista. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think if Real Madrid were that rational, Rafa Benitez wouldn't even be there to begin with. They would have stuck with Carlo Ancelotti. Put it this way: Ronaldo, Ronaldo will move on at the well, end. Well, that's of this. that's a, that's a really good point, uh, gentlemen. We are way behind on things, so why don't we hit some of our set pieces now? Let's go to our players of the week. Uh, Kartik, let's start with you. I am going to go with Mesut Ozil. I thought he was brilliant this oh, week. Call. He doesn't. He doesn't always get the credit he deserves, uh, but today he, or yesterday he was brilliant. I think we're seeing a lot from him this season because one of the things he said a couple of summers ago, I think it was the World Cup summer, was that you got you have to just understand what Arsene Wenger and um, and Yogi Lo see in me and what I do, which isn't necessarily quantifiable by stats. I don't want to get into that stats <laughs> argument again, um, uh, Lawrence, but. I'm, I'm beginning to see that. Maybe it's because I'm watching him more closely this season. But he he is just he he is so effortless in some of the subtle things he does off the ball and the touches he makes, the runs he makes. And without Aaron Ramsey in in, in the team yesterday, and with Oxley Chamberlain, who's not as good an option playing in that role, in my opinion, Ozil had to do more, and he did more, and he got him through the game. Mm. Yeah, I, I really like the when when Ozil is good. Ozil, I like the balance that he and Ramsey have together because Ozil can float around a little bit, and then Ramsey can be relied to fill the spaces. Uh, but maybe, as you mentioned, without that security blanket there, it kind of took him up to another level. Um, I'm going to go with somebody who I don't necessarily think was the best player this week, but is definitely the person that was my favorite and entertained me the most. And that's because every time Dimitri Payet touched the ball this week, it seemed like he was trying Damn to do you. something. And Granted, he was playing against 10 men for most of this game, but I'm going to kind of give this as like a season-long award to Dimitri Payet because mm-hmm. I don't think that we have given him a Player of the Week nomination yet or a nod. And I think if you're going to pick your best 11 this year, he would be in the team right now. This guy has been such an impactful player. He really is one of the reasons that West Ham is playing much differently, and I think he's been one of the best players of the season. I think he showed that this weekend, so I'm going with him. Uh, Lawrence, your turn. Uh, can I go just very simple, scored a hat trick, um, 
Harry Kane. Yeah, absolutely. Partic- uh, particularly given that he, uh, so many people were talking about him when he is when he's going to start scoring goals, and obviously he has scored goals uh, against Bournemouth. But yeah. you know, still, I mean, Harry Kane uh, to get a hat trick in any game is fantastic. Um, and I, I, I mean, one player that I would definitely say is a is a has done well this weekend. Um, uh, Lanzini got special mention, and uh, you know, as good as Bayer was, I, th- I also think he was uh, that there was an impact from Lanzini, which I enjoyed seeing for West Ham this week. Hmm. Uh, gentlemen, let's go back to Europe for the last time. I think if you toss out the Manchester derby, you could make the case that the most meaningful top of the table match in Europe took place in Spain this weekend, where two of the league's co-leaders, Celta Vigo and Real Madrid, met at Balaidos. Uh, but within 23 minutes, Real Madrid had control of this one with goals from Cristiano Ronaldo and Danilo. Early in the second half, Gustavo Cabral getting dismissed. Real Madrid goes on to a 3-1 to victory, knocking Celta three points back of the Merengues at the top of the table. Uh, late on Sunday, it looked like Real Madrid would have their spot to themselves when Ibar shockingly went up 1-0 at the new cap against Barcelona. But Luis Suarez, three goals from him. Uh, Barcelona ended the weekend even with Real Madrid at the top of, level, uh, the top of La Liga with their own 3-1 victory. Uh, as we were recording the show, Atletico and Valencia were kicking off at the Vicente Calderon. Another huge top-of-the-table match was taking place in Serie A, where Fiorentina was trying to keep their place as the league leaders against visiting Roma, but within six minutes, Roma was up through Mohamed Salah, doubled their lead before halftime through Gervinho. Uh, Salah was dismissed late in this game, allowing Fiorentina to cut the lead in half, but Roma, with their 2-1 win, now has a two-point gap at the top of Serie A. Uh, gentlemen, let's go right into another regular segment that we do, our top fours. I'll go ahead and go first on this one, guys. Um, I really did take some time to take a, a deeper look at my form top four, and I think there were a couple of teams that I've been neglecting. Um, from one to four, I have Arsenal number one. I think right now they are the best team in the league. And number two, West Ham. They've proven enough to me, and I think on form, particularly after their win over Chelsea. Three, Spurs, and then four, Edging out both City and United after City and United's performance, I feel like punishing them a little bit. I have Leicester. Um, as far as my end of the season rankings, Manchester City still number one. United and Arsenal are basically a toss-up to me at this point, a coin flip. And uh, we'll talk about Arsenal a little bit more in a couple minutes because I think I might be underrating Arsenal a little bit based on some research that's out there that I'd like to talk about. And I have Spurs number four. Kartik, your top fours. I'm going to go on form. Spurs one, Arsenal two, West Ham three. City or Leicester? Uh, let's let me let me follow your example. I'm going to go Leicester four and end of the season. City, Arsenal, United, Spurs. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, I'm just going to have to match you guys up on both those top fours, though, aren't I? Because there's there's not really any arguments to be made any other way. I think um, in terms of form, I'd still say end of the season changes every week, like it does for most of us. Uh, I go City, United. I go City. Arsenal, United, Liverpool. Mm, yeah. You know, we were going to talk about Arsenal next, but I'm going to push that towards the end of the show so that we can have the kind of back end of the show to finish that. Um, mid- midweek matchups, it's League Cup time. Uh, final 16 teams alive in League Cup. On Tuesday, Everton hosts Norwich. Arsenal travels to Sheffield Wednesday. Hull hosts Leicester. Stoke hosts Chelsea. On Wednesday, Manchester City faces Crystal Palace. Liverpool hosts Bournemouth. Southampton hosts Aston Villa. And Middlesbrough visits Manchester United. Kartik, looking forward to anything from League Cup this week? No, other than maybe just seeing what happens with Jose and the match with Stoke. And actually, that's also very interesting because of uh, Sparky. Stoke 
they continue. We haven't talked about them yet, so maybe I'll save it for when we talk about them. Yeah, we'll hit we'll hit them in a second. We'll quick hit the games that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, Lawrence, any any magic of the League Cup capturing you? Uh, Manchester United, Middlesbrough. Those of you who remember the Premier League from just a few years ago will remember Middlesbrough. I miss Middlesbrough and I miss Gareth Southgate both. Uh, I'm not sure how many people have ever said that before, Richard. Um, <laughs> Nobody but, that follows yeah. England's U-level teams would say that. Right yeah. Now. Uh, you know what? I feel a bit sorry for Gareth on that level. Um, but I like I'm, also, I'm also looking forward to uh, Liverpool-Bournemouth. I, I think it was a fascinating game last time. Last time around for Liverpool and Bournemouth mm. came so much closer than most people thought. It's going to be interesting to see. It's, I mean, you almost count it as a bit of a litmus test for Liverpool at this point. And, uh, you know, a couple of games in at this point uh, for, for Klopp. It's an, it's the set, I think it's his uh, third game at Anfield. So let's see. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be his third game at Anfield. And third different competition, too. Yeah, exactly. So he's really getting through them at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, although you've got to, I think what you're, what you're interesting said about Chelsea has almost happened at Liverpool, mm-hmm. which is, you know, and he said his MO is just to get Liverpool to play a recognisable brand of football, mm-hmm. um, not even to finish in the top four at this point. I think, that's, you know, it would be interesting to see if Chelsea was to do the same. Gentlemen, let's quick hit some of these games that we have talked ourselves out of having time for. Lawrence, uh, Crystal Palace visiting Leicester. Uh, Leicester definitely gets credit for this one second half goal from Jamie Vardy, his 10th of the season, one nothing victory. But this was really the least Crystal Palace performance of the year that I've seen from Alan Pardew's team. It's almost as if the quick transitioning Leicester didn't allow Crystal Palace to sit back and uncoil onto teams like they normally do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, the, the equality of so many of the other stats in this game probably um, speaks to that as well. Um, Crystal Palace were maybe used to being a lot more aggressive. But if you look at the line, look at the lineup for what Palace laid out there, it's not like they shouldn't have been. They had everyone that maybe you would have expected them to in this game. I just think that Leicester also managed to maybe mute um, some of what happens with Pardew's sides. And that's the worry, I think, is that at this point, it tends to be that sometimes the wheels fall off. What happened was with Pardew. Mm-hmm. By about game 12, we care, tend to be questioning yeah. where things are going. Yeah, and you were so high and low historically. That's such a good point, Lawrence. Yeah, you, I, you I, warned I us about it this a little bit at the beginning of the year, too. But I hate pundits that come back and go, told you. Well, um, well, we'll do it for you. You, did, you, didn't, you didn't go on the line, but you did hint that there might be some squad fatigue with Alan Pardew's teams. Um, Riyad Mahrez was back in the starting lineup for this one. As we mentioned, Jamie Vardy scored another goal. Uh, Kartik, Tottenham, five goals at Bournemouth. Harry Kane breaks, breaks out with a hat trick. How worried should we be about Bournemouth? Are all the injuries now really catching up with them? Yeah, I, I think... Losing Callum Wilson, Max Gradle, Mings, they've lost Elchek in, in the last couple of weeks. They, they just didn't have the depth to keep playing the way they play with the energy that Eddie Howe wants them to play with and to be able to effectively attack. And in this game, they did get the early goal, but we're seeing cracks in defense. We're also seeing Arthur Boric make mistake after mistake. As He's the goalkeeper. terrible. Yeah, he made about three, three. I think three of those Spurs goals came directly off of goalkeeping errors today. Yeah. So I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, it, they don't have a whole lot of money to spend. They've, they they broke their transfer record to bring in uh, Gradle. I believe Mings was the second uh, biggest transfer for them this summer. So uh, both those guys are injured long term. But if they have any money at all, go buy a goalkeeper in January. Uh, Lawrence, Liverpool, Southampton, this one was a dud for most of the game, but I think uh, James Milner kind of almost 
epitomizes this game in a way because he ha- is so crucial to how Liverpool is showing some positive signs under Klopp with the new system. But uh, And he delivered the cross for Benteke's goal. But then a, a somewhat uncharacteristic foul, drawing the yellow card late in the match. He's going to be suspended for his next game. And then he loses Seydou Mane on that final goal. Just those were the margins for Liverpool today, the difference between three points and one point. And strangely, it came down to James Milner. Yeah, I, I'd say with a lot of the players, we're learning... Um, basically where they will play in the Klopp system this season, not necessarily whether they are good or bad for Klopp. I think a lot of people were sort of like, okay, we'll work out whether Klopp's going to play them or not. I think we do have a set of players who he likes. I mean, it's how many people beforehand said, Divock Origi, he'll start all of them. <laughs> that would be zero. But then Klopp came in and, and said something very positive for a manager. And, and I imagine a 20-year-old player to hear, which is, we're going to have some fun with him. Now imagine hearing your manager <laughs> say that in a press conference at the age of 20. We're going to have some fun with him. That must be so liberating for a striker, mm-hmm. especially a young striker who's not played very much and has been in league earned. People have been ah, you know, maligning him, basically. Mm-hmm. To have someone who comes in and just backs you and says, look, he's young, etc., and to see what he's done with other young players must be fantastic. I'm not saying, therefore, we're going to get a great product out of him, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how Liverpool play with him. And then for Benteke to come on and score a goal, I think a lot of people have been talking about the integration of a £32.5 million striker into this squad, Mm -hmm. bearing in mind that he was injured when Klopp first arrived, um, or at least looked injured when Klopp first arrived. So, you know, there's a lot of things here that I think it's the same as, you could say a lot of that for the same as when Liverpool signed Benteke, was it was, will he play well for uh, Brendan Rodgers, Liverpool? Will Liverpool, Brendan Rodgers fit him? And I think the the assessment very often was so face value on so many of these things that we didn't think of either side as adaptable. And I think we're seeing we're, we will probably see that from both sides this season as Klopp has to be short termist in some of his approaches, which is getting the best right now, and also at the same time showing people this summer and this January look is worth coming here because we're going to do something exciting. Kartik at the Britannia, you had alluded to it before. Stoke, coming off a Monday win over Swansea, ends up giving those points back. Watford, a 2-0 victory. When I look at Stoke and they aren't playing well, I tend to point to the same people, Kartik. Glenn Whelan, Charlie Adams in the starting lineup. Goes to John Walters coming off the bench. I don't think these are players that really are starting Premier League caliber players at this point, and Mark Hughes continues to find a role for them. Yeah, I think Charlie Adams, that's a bit harsh on him, although he has some stinkers of of games and and he he makes some comical errors in the sense of not not necessarily uh, uh, giveaways but discipline errors. He's been doing that uh, recently, at least under Sparky. But uh, the other two, I would agree with. I think I think the league has moved on. He, they, they're they're older. They don't necessarily play the style Sparky wants. But again, this Stoke has been on a good run the last few matches. We didn't we didn't talk about their win um, against uh, Swansea on the on the south coast or in South Wales. On Monday, and so I was beginning to finally feel good about Stokes, thinking, okay, this is the team I picked to finish in the top half. I thought they could push for Europe. They're finally showing signs of life. Uh, Boyan might have conned the ref into that into that penalty, but still, uh, good effort, good game. They controlled the game even after that goal. Swansea was never really in it, and then this happens, and uh, it's 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 stunning. But I have to say, Kiki Sanchez Flores has that Watford team. So well drilled, and yeah. it's a team. He's a new manager. He's new to English football. I mean, he's had some. He's had some success with Atleti and other places, but he's new to English football. And they had so many new players. I didn't expect them to be this strong. They are a strong side. 
I would be very surprised if they got relegated at this point. They just look like it's not just results, but it's the way they're playing. They're organized. They get goals on the counter. Uh, Troy Deeney is now uh, finding his confidence again. He was the one guy that was missing in action with a step up to the Premier League. And he's a guy, of course, Premier League teams tried to take away from them a couple times. So and he stuck with them in the championship. So. I really like the way Watford's playing. Yeah, I love the balance they have with their attacking four. I like their midfield. Etienne Capoue is very good. The only thing about this team that I really don't like, I don't like their fullbacks that much, but uh, I, I do think that Watford is one of the, it's a team that I really like watching. Uh, one more game before we talk about Arsenal and Lawrence. Uh, West Brom won nothing victory at Norwich. We've been touting Norwich all year, another disappointing result, but I think this game at least leads to a place in the table where you can say one of your most reliable sayings since uh, all of us coming back to the podcast together. Good West Bromis Albion is eighth in the league right now. Amazingly, mm-hmm. they're eighth in the league, but I, I mm-hmm. get the feeling we probably shouldn't be looking at the table at this point in the season. Yep. Oh, oh wait a minute. How many games on it you know, are we now, guys? We're at 10. Well, now we can start looking at the table. Oh, no. So you know what's guys, so funny about this? When uh, Allardyce got the Sunderland job and I had, I had penciled in Sunderland Newcastle and uh, Sunderland, uh, Villa, and then either Newcastle or Bournemouth to get relegated because of all of Bournemouth's injuries. I said, okay, well, Sunderland's not going to go down. That means West Brom probably will this season. I still think that was my that was the assumption I made, and they've won twice since then. I still think they're not good, but geez, they got two people who can score goals on their team, so that's something. Yeah, I mean, but that uh, part of it is look at those two strikers and look at the quality of both those strikers, but also look at the service that, that they ha- that both those strikers have to get. They that was it, yeah. have scored goals um, more recently that you would say required service. Yeah. So, you know, at, at least there are some positives in there. It was, I think it was McLean who got the assist today. If I'm right. Yeah. This, this weekend's game was so obvious. They were just going to go down the flanks all game, keep pumping yeah. in for Rondon. And then eventually it broke through. And I'm, that's on Norwich. Norwich has to know that something so basic can't be allowed to beat them yet. It happened. So uh, Alex, <laughs> Alex Neal has some questions to answer there with his team. Their previous approach may have answered that one. Uh, uh, just true. the week before. Yeah. This is very, very true. Uh, gentlemen, let's close this podcast by talking about Arsenal. You know, I mentioned it in the opening of the show. It seems like the eternal question this time of year is Arsenal for real? Since they're joint top of the table, we have to really consider it. The one thing that keeps coming to my mind here is work by Michael Cayley, who I don't think uh, I don't think most people know because most people don't dive deep into soccer analytics, even though it's a coming field. Uh, Michael Cayley is at mc underscore of underscore a on Twitter, and he's doing some great work with something that he a method that he calls just uh, expected goals and expected goal ratio. Um, And the basic idea behind it is that if you look at the quality of chances a team generates and then compare it to the quality of chances that they give up, eventually there is a strong correlation with their actual results. And what Michael has been saying all year really about Arsenal is that Arsenal's underlying form, the quality of chances that they're generating and the quality of chances they're giving up really makes them kind of the co-pilot along with Manchester City in this title race. I found this was very interesting, Kartik, because you and I in particular, and I think Lawrence also shares this view, is that we have to take a bit of a wait-and-see look at Arsenal. And I don't think Michael's work defies that in any way. But what his work is saying is that this Arsenal team that we're seeing right now, after their 2-1 win with Everton, are posting as good a results not only in terms of wins and losses, but in terms of the chances that they're generating and the chances that they're preventing as anybody in the league. So how, at what point do you and I start to buy into that and stop looking back on the recent history of Arsenal as an excuse not to buy into them? 
Well, because Arsenal is the one team that has had the same manager. They're the one team that's generally had the same core, core players. Although Manchester City has kept largely the same core, but different manager in Pellegrini. Well, the history is better, actually, for Manchester City, the recent history that we might yeah. cite. So uh, that's why we do it with Arsenal. We don't do it with other sides the way we do it with Arsenal. There is a reason for that. And they have started this season much better than the previous two seasons. And I sat and watched that game and drooling over Ozil. And I was thinking, my goodness, you know, this title race. Man yeah. City's they're not, but then, they, but they, then they're at not the end, as good as Arsenal. At the end, and they almost they, gave up two points, well, well, too. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to get to. I was like, oh, gosh, you know, from City's perspective, they're not. Uh, and this was before I went into my funk last night after results in our domestic yeah, second division. That. I'm not, not going to get into that. The Tampa Bay-Fort Lauderdale results, both uh, those results went against me. But So I'm drooling over Arsenal's play. And then there's always something that makes you question and remind you, oh, they're Arsenal, they're at home, now they're playing open, uh, and Peter Cech has had to save them a couple times. But the question then, Richard, I don't want to look at the statistics, and uh, I'm glad he's done that work, but is Peter Cech that much of an upgrade that they would win the title this season or in, instead of finishing third or fourth where they finished each of the last ten seasons? He might be. Because yeah. yesterday... They they don't win that game without him. Yeah, the last three or four games for them, he's been as good as any. He and David De Gea have been the best shot stoppers in the league over that period of time. Uh, but Lawrence, you know, going back to the the numbers, because I think what makes the numbers so interesting to talk about with Arsenal is that we know that Arsenal over periods of times of months, sometimes ha- entire like half of seasons, they can perform as good as anybody. And the work that people like Michael Cayley do, it really starts to have the strong predictive power once your sample size gets to 14, 15, 16, 18 games. It really does start to level off, and you see that the correlations become strong. And we are now starting to get to the point where those correlations are getting stronger, and I'm just wondering if at some point we have to acknowledge that Arsenal might be a different team, even if they have the same person driving the team. Uh, yes. And you would also say, I think the, the um, expected goals theory is very trendy in terms of what people are speaking about at the moment in mm-hmm. football statistics. Although you would say there also are quite intense critical analysis of it as well. I'm too well versed on, uh, I've, I've been in conversations where people have spoken about it, but I wouldn't say that I can speak with any sort of great, uh, uh, weight about it. Um, I'm R squared about it. I don't have any weight. Uh, so I, I just think I have no power. Uh, I, but uh, I, so it's what he basically he has a lot of different formulas for his main ones is, is expected goals. Um, I, w- I would say when it comes to Arsenal, though, there is a lot that we can talk about tactic wise um, from the way that Arsenal play and whether it's effective or not against certain sides. Although the difference this weekend was that we saw a team that maybe we... That's the thing. is, Do you expect it to be uh, very effective against Everton? Well, I don't know. I think that's kind of what you were saying, to put it in different words, is what I'm trying to get out here. At what point do we look at what Arsenal is doing and we actually try to find reasons that they won't keep this up. Because that's what we're really trying to do. They're even on points with City at the top of the league. All of the underlying factors tell us that this is real. They're just not picking up points here and there where it's like a team like West Ham's point total maybe exceeds what they are doing underlying those numbers. Arsenal looks like they are for real. So what reasons do we really have, be it tactically, historically, personnel-wise, to really say that what Arsenal has done over the first 10 games of the season will not be the same team they are in the last 10 games of the season? Well, I mean, I guess burnout and those kind of things. Um, 
that there is also, I, I think he also favours intricacy with a lot of passing at times. Mm. I think Arsenal definitely favour that as well. Uh, very intense, very quick intricacy of passing. Doesn't necessarily rely on uh, possession, which is good for them because they've, I, I think actually against Bayern and Spurs, which are the two best recent results, um, where you'd say the team has played to the best of its ability against a side who have also played particularly well, um, have been the times when Arsenal have actually not dominated possession. So uh, I, I would say he, he has a point to make there, but I'd also say there has to be a critical analysis of where those statistics come from and whether we can put statistics to the mental changes that go on throughout our season, uh, all those kind of things, and what comes with that. Because I'd say there are some people who are very questionable, even though I actually really like what he does. I think there are there are still big questions to ask over expected goals, and um, you know we call things expected goals. You know <laughs> that 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 itself alludes to the fact that it's expected. Not yeah, necessarily there's a little bit itself. of a hypothetical there to it. Yeah, exactly. You know, just like with any number, you have to ask how that number came about and how likely those uh, that scenario is going to replicate itself going forward. And, and, uh, but also how you end up pick, uh, what, like obviously there is a self interest from a lot of people in proving that their statistics will do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do like his, I I love reading his work because, you know, I think he spoke last season about how Dortmund will come back. And at the time, I didn't know an awful lot about that, but I found his article incredibly informative. So I think it's worth reading his work and then looking at uh, what we think about it. But what I would say is there's so much more intricacy to it than just will they score or not. Absolutely. And I think, Kartik, for you and me, it probably boils down to Wenger. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong in anything I say here, I don't think you and I are big believers in Arsene Wenger. I think we see too many times where his se- his team seem to not be able to maintain their intensity when they need to or respond in the games that are going to decide this title, like when Arsenal has to go to the Etihad later and uh, we have a team that has won two titles and has leaders in the team and have players that have performed in big games and won titles and scored in the 93rd minutes of games that they need to score a goal in to win the title. Uh, Those are games where you and I are going to fall back on history and say, this is probably not going to go Arsenal's way. And I don't know that there's any number that can dissuade my feeling that Arsene Wenger is not going to deliver in those games. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in fact, uh, that specific example, uh, Arsenal has a very good record against Manchester City the last few years, better than any of the other top teams. That having been said, if you have to pick a winner and a lot's on the line, you're going to pick Manchester City. And I think we probably feel that way even about Manchester United in this this kind of Von Hall era because they still have Rooney. They still have Michael Carrick. They still have guys who've been on title-winning teams. De Gea was a title-winning goalkeeper. And we just don't have the faith in Arsene Wenger and we don't have faith in the big Arsenal players to produce when it's all on the line. That having been said, the one caveat I put on everything is the change at goalkeeper. I don't know if mm-hmm. that's worth a, a jump from third or fourth where they finish every season to winning the title, but he is a title winning keeper in England. He's already proven that he can, he can save points for them. He's already rescued. I, I don't, I'm, Offhand, he's probably already rescued three to five points for them this season. So uh, certainly, uh, he preserved two this weekend. Yeah, he pres- yeah, I was going to say they certainly got two additional oh, points. And against Bayern, <laughs> yeah. Well, well yeah, he's, so, he's been great. He's been so great. that's the only caveat I would put on it. Yes, I don't have the faith in Wenger. I, I completely concur with your analysis, Richard. Everything you said, I uh, associate with and agree with. The only difference this season might be that goalkeeper change, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll see. 
And maybe the difference this season, too, instead of having both Chelsea and Manchester City setting the pace in the league, maybe this year, although Arsenal was there last year, maybe this year there's one fewer roadblock. That's going to be one of the big stories over the rest of this winter. How does Arsenal reach January? How do they reach March? The point where they're really going to have to perform when they're going to be seeing these teams for the second time. Are they going to be able to maintain this? Are they going to go through another swoon? Or with Arsenal, are they going to be able to, are they going to be unable to get their players back on the field? Fitness has been such a defining thing for Arsenal over the last few years. Well, everybody, we're going to be back in seven days, probably to talk about Arsenal again, probably to talk about Jose again, and maybe to talk about another Aston Villa manager, 11th match day of the Premier League season then. But until then, for my co-host Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley.